You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 122. Folks, today it is my great pleasure to welcome once again to the show Nathan Edmondson. Nathan is the president and co-founder of Eco Defense Group. Eco Defense Group is like wildlife special ops. Although they don't engage directly with poachers, but they rather act as a training, support, and consultancy organization to support frontline rangers who are facing direct dangers and threats uh, from confrontations with poachers. Um, Nathan uh, brings us some uh, news from Africa, uh, some new developments uh, on the grounds of anti-poaching. And as usual, that's a very interesting conversation in terms of, you know, we discuss the impact of COVID-19 pandemic once we have it, you know, I think we, it's fair to say that it's uh, behind us right now. So uh, Nathan is bringing up some news and some assessment what impact it had and, uh, and also in general, you know, how the situation looked like. Uh, folks, I'm not going to be dragging this uh, any longer. Just a few announcements uh, before I let you enjoy this episode of, of the podcast. First off, there is a Tommy's Outdoors shop. Uh, you can go to tommysoutdoors.com shop or just click on the menu shop on tommysoutdoors.com and you can buy yourself a range of Tommy's Outdoors gears, uh, uh, hats and t-shirts and uh, soon more. So uh, uh, give me a, leave me a comment um, if you're you know missing the size that you would like or you have idea of some other um, Tommy's Outdoor swag that you would like to buy. Let me know uh, in the comments and I'll try to make it happen. Uh, secondly, uh, please uh, leave the rating. If you're new here or maybe if you are a returning listener and you haven't done so yet, you can leave the rating, five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast and is help, uh, helping greatly to the podcast to reach more uh, listeners and more viewers. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, give it a like and uh, leave a comment. Again, uh, these are things that are helping tremendously uh, with the podcast to reach more listeners and viewers. Um, on Apple, if you're an Apple guy or gal, you can go an extra mile and read the, leave the review. Uh, leave the podcast review on Apple Podcast. Again, uh, that's a great help. And, uh, and finally, um, you know, you know, if you, especially if you're returning listeners, that I'm editing those episodes very early in the morning, like 5 a.m. early in the morning. And uh, so coffee is uh, very helpful. Um, and you can help me uh, directly by buying me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Tommy's Outdoors, the link in the description of the show. Uh, big thank you for to all of you who already bought me a coffee. And uh, I'm not kidding you. This is help. This is help because, like I said, early mornings or late nights are the time where I'm editing those episodes for you. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. I'm not going to be dragging this any longer. So ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Edmondson and Eco Defense Group. Nathan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tommy. It's been a while. What was going on in the meantime? Uh, I'm just still long enough to uh, to jump on with you. We've been extremely busy. So I've been uh, ocean hopping and uh, spending the last few weeks um, going around and uh, trying to work out, work out our funding for the year and for next year. Uh, things have gotten pretty ambitious. So nonstop for me. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I noticed when we were... Uh, setting up to record this that you were on a flight and then another flight and there was everything was in the, on the move. Um, so you're very busy. 
Listen, uh, tell for for our listeners who are uh, not familiar with uh, with you and uh, with Eco Defense Group, uh, if if you don't mind to give us a a little bit of introduction for people who are new here to the to the concept and to what you do. Certainly. Um, so I am Nathan Edmondson, uh, as introduced. I am the president and founder of Eco Defense Group. We are a five hundred one c three based in the U.S. a nonprofit. Uh, we are designed to be a um, consultancy support and development organization for uh, special operations counter poaching capabilities uh, for African wildlife. So we work to develop ranger groups to be more capable to protect and uh, defend threatened wildlife, specifically the rhino, but um, all wildlife, abalone, lion, uh, in primarily national parks or um, large parks where there are significant wild populations. Uh, we are mostly a clandestine organization. That is to say, we uh, seek private support and a lot of the work we do is not disclosed and is private, um, which makes podcasting about it fun. Uh, we also um, are a group that it stands behind those who stand between the, the wildlife and the poacher. So we don't seek credit. And if we're doing what we do well, uh, you don't hear about it. You know, so um, we're a small group. Again, we're based in the U.S., but we deploy and, and do our work um, anywhere in uh, in Africa where we're solicited and needed. We've been around for six years. And is the uh, uh, main focus, like I said, main focus on rhino because they, they, they these are the most endangered, the most valuable animals in terms of uh, poaching? Or, yeah. or what's the reason or like why rhino first? Absolutely. Uh, the rhino, rhino horn, you know, in the uh, secondary market, in the black markets is one of the most valuable materials on the planet. So that is certainly the, the species most targeted. It is the species um, that is on a timeline for extinction. Uh, literally, you can set a clock by it at this point. Um, and uh, protecting the rhino is also, we call it an umbrella species. So defense of the rhino and developing protection for the rhino uh, is detection uh, for the biosphere, for all animals that exist, coexist within it in its environment. The same syndicates that seek to um, seek to traffic in, in rhino horn uh, are also trafficking in lion bone, ivory, abalone. Um, so you, it is the, it is the same, um, it is the same, you're, you're in the same campaign and the same mission, but the rhino is, is at the center of the crosshairs. Mm. And, and what are they, you know, second, third on, on the list, would you say? Uh, in terms of the second and third that are most targeted? Yeah, either most targeted or most, you know, focused by, by uh, eco-defense group. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the location uh, and, and the trends change. You know, you'll have poisonings and a focus on um, lion uh, poaching in one area one year and the next year it may evolve based on either availability or market demand. Um, right now, uh, national parks with rhino are our primary focus. Uh, we do have some substantial uh, programs that are abalone focused right now um, off the, uh, in, in coastal marine areas. Again, same syndicates and these are national parks within the same network. So there's a lot of consistency to the effort. Uh, and then, you know, we are in two areas right now where um, one where we're, we're developing a program right now for uh, an area where um, gorillas are uh, being targeted and, and directly and indirectly. Uh, that's in it, it's a nascent program right now. That'll be a new species focus for us. But really, the, fo the, the species itself, um, while it may... Uh, well, depending on the species, the the um, habits or the actions of the poaching syndicates, uh, or certainly the local, the locally recruited poachers, are going to be distinct. Uh, really, there's a lot that the oftentimes the species itself is is irrelevant in terms of the development of the protection program. So, um, you know, when you talk about different species, I mean, it's one, it's it's fascinating to me as somebody who loves, you know, the parks and loves to experience, uh, you know, these different wild areas um, and, and for many of our, our staff and our instructors. But um, ultimately, we ultimately you were looking to protect the species, but the species is threatened by people um, and those people have very similar behaviors 
um, and very similar capabilities in many environments. So anyway, that's a long way of saying it depends. Sometimes it's the same. Sometimes it's, you know, the, the, you're, you're developing a program that looks very similar, but as a consultancy, we look at all the unique elements of each environment, each, uh, the behavior of each, um, each syndicate or each, uh, um, entity that is seeking to do wildlife harm and traffic and uh, illegally traffic in wildlife. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and this is, you went, you mentioned gorillas. Why, why gorillas are being targeted for poaching? What's the value of gorilla? Um, so first of all, any wildlife can have value. If it doesn't have obvious value, the value is part, part of a marketing campaign. Um, there are certain animals for, you know, what rhino horn is a, um, is a, a commodity, if you will, or is uh, a, a market, you know, something that's sold in the market has been for thousands of years. Um, but only in the last 20 years or so, with the increase of cancer rates in Southeast Asia, has it pushed, well, it's the second time in the last century, but the, the, this is the most intense uh, war that has been driven by that demand. Um, gorillas, uh, you know, there, there are a number of um, black market exploitations for, for trafficking in gorillas, but a lot of times in areas with gorillas, and I'm, I'm being a little vague because this specific program is, is not open for us to, to talk to, to, um, too specifically about yet, but a lot of times it's, it's the environment that's being targeted. It may be, for example, uh, illegal, um, uh, illegal, uh, deforestation, or, um, you may be looking at specific organs or, you know, hands, paws, fur, things like that. Uh, and, or it could just be that violent extremists are in the area who are looking, um, and, and who are threatening the same security or the same individuals providing, providing security for the, the gorilla as well as the environment, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say that, that, that sometimes like extraction in industry for mineral and extraction, they are, they want to put their hand on the land that is uh, rich in certain minerals or whatever. And there is like a protect, protected areas because there are gorillas. So the best way is to get rid of the gorillas. Yeah. And, and gorillas suffer, uh, you know, from substantial, uh, in, in certain areas from substantial demand on energy. So you stop the building of a dam, for example, then the local population needs, you know, they need fuel, uh, they need energy, and that fuel is most available in the hardwood and that, that is the gorilla's native environment, uh, which is already uh, such a small territory that is that they're allowed to exist in. So um, the energy demand just is a, is a constant hurricane-like pressure out to destroy um, the last like healthy wild remaining populations of, of gorilla. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a subject that is coming up over and over again, that really, uh, conservation is more, should be more focused on the habitat and protecting habitat rather than specific animal, because once the habitat is protected and the animals, and like you, like you mentioned earlier, the whole host, whole plethora of animals will, will find a refuge in, in those areas if they are protected. Yeah. And, and to that point, I mean, Genetic, it, we're not always purely talking in, in conservation. And I'm, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a geneticist, so I speak with you know, third-hand knowledge at best on this, but you're not always talking purely numbers. You're talking genetic diversity, genetic health, uh, the interconnectedness with the biodiversity um, in, with which they've co-evolved, uh, whatever that species may be or the many species. So a lot of times we get very focused exactly to your point on uh, a despeciation trend, but really if you're ignoring the, the entirety of the wild environment, um, you know, if you focus on just the numbers in a small private reserve, for example, but ignore the national park, which provides a lot of that bio genetic biodiversity uh, that all other areas benefit from uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a long-term view that is going to um, allow sustainable conservation that's going to allow sustainable preservation of animals and at the end of the day what species are protected in that in a more exclusive approach uh, like that uh, are going to um, are, are going to face an entire other set of problems uh, diseases um, you're not going to have the the distribution and, and you'll just see sort of diminishing territory diminishing land and soon you know 
the the student wildlife exists only in a zoo. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a situation when we <laughs> would rather avoid. Um, listen, um, you 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 mentioned that briefly, but I I want to you you know elaborate on this a little bit more. You guys, as an eco defense group, you are not uh, directly involved in fighting poachers. You, you're not you're not running around with guns and through the bush and, and doing that. You're 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 kind of like a supporting, providing support to the local, was it community or rangers? Uh, primarily, our goal. That is correct. We do not engage uh, in anybody from, you know, the West who who claims to be or is seeking to be involved. I would caution uh, against involvement with those kinds of entities. Um, uh, one is in principle, we are not the one risking ourselves and we're not there to displace or, or be an active force. Uh, two is legal for legal reasons. Um, that is a quick way for us to get in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, but I think primarily it, the focus is, and, and our interest is in those who have taken up this cause is enabling them one, uh, to not be disenfranchised and not feel alone, right? This may be their fight, but it's our concern. It's a global concern. Um, this may be their role to play, but our role is in uh, making sure that their role uh, is not, that they're not fighting a losing fight, as you will. Um, we support and enable, uh, that may, may mean training, mentorship, uh, provision of equipment, um, but everything starts from a point of consultation. Uh, it may be that they need, a specific ranger group may need a, um, internal uh, training and leadership, uh, like a, a enabling interior trainers and having a leadership and a team cohesion approach. It may be very specific training related to a tool that they need, you know, to do their patrols and engage in contact. So we look at these hotspots, we're invited to work, and we try to um, identify the end state that is going to create an asymmetrical uh, relationship between the ranger and the threat. That is, we're not looking to make everybody look like some uniform entity or force. We are looking to uh, make them more capable than the threat that faces them. And our goal is primarily the safety of the ranger and two is the protection of the wildlife um, and safety and well-being of the ranger. So we're, we're a small entity and we're very surgical in our approaches. But uh, yes, to answer your question, absolutely. We are, we are support organization not an organization designed to engage any international threat it's imp it's important to emphasize and listen how do you how do you find the uh, these or these these organization or these cases that are in in the need um you, you know are you doing research yourself or are you waiting for um people to reach out to you and like how does that work or you know because uh that's that's an inter interesting point. You know, like how how do you know that someone needs help, and that kind of ties to another. I, 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 I'm going to ask this compound question, right? But it, I think it's important that sometimes you hear um, complain, let's say that oh, that you know, like a rich white people going to Africa and telling them what they need to do. All right, they need to do this, they need to do that, and so on. Um, so I would I would like to you know hear your opinion about that. And 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 you know, kind of tied to this, like you know, how how you're finding those points where where the help is needed. Yeah. So to your second point first, uh, absolutely, we uh, are everything that we do. We seek to be in collaboration. Um, you have to strike a balance between deploying and, and offering expertise that we have uh, that that we have access to, um, and truly understanding. The unique needs of uh, whatever entity that that we're serving. Um, so it, it's a balance, uh, and and oftentimes it's it's evolves by the hour. You know, you learn that, and you continue to do consultation on, for example, equipment that we provided to see what is what is sustainable. You know, what what's really going to last. Um, in terms of our, our our development is primarily based on word of mouth. It's organic. Uh, I like to say we do fireside development. We learn about problems that we can solve by sitting around a fire with people and building relationships. Uh, our relationships with <clears throat> the park entities um, whom host us and who, who allow us to come as guests and support their programs, that's paramount to us is the preservation of those relationships and the development of those to you know serve effectively um, and build on that success. So uh, 
without going into too many specifics, we've we've had a canine program recently uh, that we're we're well that, that we that continues. And based on that success and the development of that program, the park manager there asked us to be in touch with someone in another country who had another need that he thought we'd be able to uh, to serve. So we started speaking with with um, the authorities there, looking at what's, again, what is consistent with our current work and what's unique about your environment and your needs, and then uh, identifying a plan forward and trying to understand, well, how much will this cost? How much time will it cost You know, for us to seek a, an in-state in a project that actually delivers your needs? Because very often th- there's... You know, most groups uh, or many groups, I should say, fundraise on the problem. You know, uh, we, we fundraise on the solution, but we have to put <clears throat> we have to put a lot of effort into identifying that solution. And very often people are easily able to identify the problem, but they're not necessarily as easily or enabled to uh, recognize the solution. They just know the problem that they want remedied. So <clears throat> a level of um, of a level of uh consultation um is going to be necessary yeah that's what that was well put that the campaigning and fundraising on a problem rather than a solution that's uh something uh, i see a lot um and it was very well there were you know, there's like a second saying that you're that you dropped me in the last few days that i was like it's a it's a very good one um listen so you know i i'm wondering like how do you strike the balance then between you know, on the one hand, you're saying that uh, the organization is kind of small, surgical, you're not really looking for, you know, a lot of uh, publicity. And on, on the other hand, you, you know, you have uh, reasonable social media presence and, you know, you need to you need to get people, you know, to know about you and, and potentially being able to reach out. Somewhere. So how do you strike the balance between these two opposite. Yeah. Uh, and well, there's a lot of what we do that isn't on any social media. You know, there's a, there's a clandestine side to our, and very often it's, you know, we can put a component of a particular program. Um, we're increasingly pulling away actually from a lot of our public, uh, from a lot of our public presence. Um, just as the demand grows, as our, you know, programs become more complex as this happened over the last couple of years. It requires more and more discretion on our part in respect of the partner and the program. It's, uh, you know, I don't know that, that I have an exact formula. It's just something that takes constant management on our part. On the one hand, we we want to be good advocates for these places because we have the opportunity to bring both support and understanding of the unique uh, unique. Um, troubles that they face and, and these crises. On the other hand, we are a guest in their environments and it is not our place to to um, broadcast, you know, the specifics of, of their needs. Can you tell us, you know, how the situation changed in Africa in terms of poaching and, and you know, and, and impacts over the last, you know, three, four years? I remember when the COVID hit, there was, a, you know, a lot of concerns over, you know, actually, it was like a mixed signals. You know, on the one hand, it was like, yeah, uh, there was a huge hit because of a uh, funding uh, was cut because the travel was cut. There was no funding from tourism. You know, whether it was hunting or 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 you know non extractive tourism. Uh, but in relation to poaching, it was you know on on one hand, you could hear like, yeah, the poaching you know died down. There's not that much poaching. The you know because there's travel restrictions, this and that. And then on the other hand, there was uh, there were there were uh, signals like yeah, but you know the poaching actually, they're just stockpiling, uh, you know, with a rhino horn or whatever. And then once the restrictions will be lifted, then everything will kick off. And like so, can you can you comment on this? You know how that situation played out now that we you know we can fairly say that the the COVID situation is you know more or less under control. Um, I, and, and I don't know that I'm the, I can only speak from our perspective. I'm, I'm certainly not an authority in the, um, or, or versed enough in, in kind of the international trends to, to, you know, give really accurate assessments of a lot of it, but I can say a couple of things. Um, one is that from what I, from what I am aware, um, the majority of claims that poaching had been substantially reduced were just due to the, the, there, there was uh, uh, shutdowns. There, there were um, 
restrictions on movement uh, that apply to everybody. It was easier to identify when people were moving. So there were no tourists in there, for example, for poaching elements to mix in with. Uh, there were shipping had stopped. So airports had stopped. So the movement of traffic parts was uh, impossible or, or less than possible. Uh, Post-COVID, the demand in our experience has, it, it's almost that the shutdown has created a perfect storm. You have uh, the pent-up demand. You have an absolute destruction or erosion of resources, up to 90% of budget gone in some of these places because it's all tourism-based. You have um, disenfranchised people in positions of wildlife management and authority who have been isolated and are now being um, uh, predated on by uh, by poaching syndicates, identified as more vulnerable. So corruption rises. Um, so <clears throat> with the rhino especially, it's been an explosion post-COVID and a lot of other poaching is, is spiking too. So I think that the claims and the looks at the it was it was very artificial. The statistics were very artificial, um, and now the situation is much more dire post COVID in in the areas where we are working. Uh, anyway, in, in the areas where we've been exposed, it's um, the. I wrote a piece I think for the the um, uh, Spectator um, that uh, about the the um, Omicron shit, and we were over there when the Omicron news hit, and. You know, I venture to say that national shutdowns and shutdown of international commerce and industry and business was really a first world luxury. Um, a lot of countries where that did host these parks, they couldn't afford to shut down. Airlines went bankrupt. Um, so, you know, whatever justification you have for it, you have to look at the detrimental effects of those shutdowns to these wild places, as well as just the, the host economy, uh, the, 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 you know, overall well-being of the, the population in that country. Because, you know, these animals don't, they don't live in isolation. The, these wild places are hosted by countries whose economy, health, movement, um, you know, uh, uh, society, fabric society, all these things have, have a strong bearing on, um, you know, on the, the, the how, how well these places can thrive or under what kind of threat. So yeah, that, that's avoiding a lot of this, the statistics, which I'm not, I don't have on hand well enough to cite, but I can tell you that the beginning of this year, I saw one of the worst uh, initial rhino poaching attacks I think we've ever seen in South Africa and the trends have escalated since then. So um, yeah, it, it's not a good situation. Uh, in terms of looking beyond COVID, um, the, the trends are dramatic and they're really, they're easy to Google and look at the number of rhino you had 100 years ago, 50 years ago, for example, uh, elephant lion populations as well. Um, and I would also say in educating yourself along those numbers, look carefully at the, the square miles um, or square hectares allocated to wildlife uh, and, and some in the budgets devoted to them. There's always some good trends too, um, not to be ignored. There have been expansion of parks and acquisition of new land, but overall the uh, economy behind the trafficking of wildlife part, uh, wildlife, um, illegal trafficking of, uh, trafficking of wildlife is going, uh, has escalated over the past decades and is now at a point where, like I said, you can clock, set a clock to the extinction of the rhino and some other species. Hmm. I'd like to recommend the Hunter Conservationist podcast. It's a show that offers nuanced discussions about wildlife science, conservation, and responsible hunting in Canada. This podcast shares similar themes. So if you enjoy my show, I'm confident you'll also appreciate the Hunter Conservationist podcast. You can find it on the same platform you're currently using for listening. In addition, you can visit thehunterconservationist.com or simply click on the link in the show notes. Do you, do you think that, that Rhino is done and we're just delaying the inevitable or is it still like a you know, light that, uh, well, you know, in principle, I don't think you can, I, I just don't think you can say it's done. Um, even if you, even if it's hard to see the light, uh, I, I don't believe that we are allowed the luxury to admit defeat. Um, I think that over the last year with some of our programs or maybe even more the last six months, I have started to 
see a greater cause for hope um, in the specific areas where we're working. Now, it, it's that comes with a huge asterisk um, and, and a great caveat that bureaucracy, uh, international restrictions on hunting and, and uh, tourism and other things, all of these are, are sort of like, uh, they're, they're, it's water, it's pressure against the dam, if you will. Uh, but there are, we, we have engaged in levels of consultation where we believe we can see a pathway to success. You know, and what, what does success mean to us right now? Our goal is to say, buy the rhino 10 years and five years. Um, that is the current victory. Um, you know, there's no such thing as saving the rhino. It will continue to be under threat. However, in 10 years, um, we can start to allow for other solutions and other, you know, <clears throat> partners to come to the table. And you can look at the positive effects of protecting wild spaces. For example, the wild dog. At one point, there were just a couple few hundred in the, in the world. Um, and due to a number of factors... Uh, now the wild dog has been introduced in two areas where we're working. It's been reintroduced and is thriving. Populations are, are growing. Uh, it's doing really well. Um, <clears throat> so there are, <clears throat> but, but there was a time at which you could not see, you know, you, you could not project that kind of hope for that species. You know, it, its numbers were dwindling at a rate that seemed irreconcilable um, with, with uh, long-term survival. So you have to there's a lot of reasons to be disheartened and there's a lot of news and honestly people should feel more you know th there should be more negative news people are not aware enough of the, the the likely tragedy facing or the crisis under which these these animals um struggle to exist or against which these animals struggle to exist uh and and the rangers uh you know dedicate themselves to to protecting um, the wildlife, but, uh, you know, people need to feel it more. People just aren't aware. On the other hand, you have to balance that with hope. I mean, we can't afford to lose this fight. We just can't. This is a, um, this is a global concern and this isn't something where we weren't aware that this species was threatened when we were, you know, mining for this and, you know, only found out later that we had, you know, introduced a pesticide that was killing out. This is happening on our watch and we can see it. We can literally watch it happen in front of our eyes. So, you know, if we admit defeat, um, I mean, this is a, this is a global failure that, uh, you know, it's hard to justify how we have a right to life and the rhino doesn't at some point if we can't, you know, if we can't, uh, <clears throat> you know, if we, if we can't perpetuate our investment in its protection and survival. Is that, is that, is, are those thoughts about, you know, like people don't know really what's going on and we need to, we need to get more involved. Was that something, was that what, uh, you know, push you through to, you know, uh, be one of the founders of the eco defense group like you know what was the what was that initial spark in you that made you you know go go down this path well on the one hand i had some of the greatest opportunities and experiences of my life um <clears throat> when i was first introduced to uh the efforts and and some of the the individuals and groups um on the front lines of specifically of the rhino war um, I think retroact, you know, looking in retrospect, I should say, uh, a great um, driver that propelled me to 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 develop this this program and this organization was um, really the shocking discovery that I was in a position to do anything about it. And I think my perception from afar was that surely this has been solved by many other people. And it's an example I use often, but we've gone to areas that are literally international front lines for the rhino and lion and uh, big five crisis, and they don't have flashlights. <clears throat> you know, they don't have new boots. Uh, that That's, you know, the simplest example of how we just realized we were in a position to help. But beyond that, I had access to communities of expertise that have... Lifetime warriors who could be faced with a new mission or presented with a new mission. Um, people who've never lost a fight and can educate, support, consult, and, and just become, you know, join in a brotherhood, you know, as as support supportive mentors with other people who face potentially or apparently insurmountable odds. Uh, it's an awesome gap to bridge, and and I am incredibly grateful and, and very much humbled to be in a position to offer something. And I want this to be uh, something 
you know, legacy for my kids. I think you, you start getting to an age too, where that becomes a driver in a lot of, a lot of what you do day to day is <clears throat> the legacy, you know, how your kids talk about you, uh, you know, what they get to experience, but I want to ensure that they have to every degree possible that they have the opportunity to experience what I have over there, um, which is not guaranteed by a long stretch. Um, it's already, you go to certain places, it's harder to see Rhino than it was five years ago. You know, you used to see him every other day. Now you see him once a week uh, in areas. So the, 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 the reality is real, if you will. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, it, it, it was more understanding usefulness uh, understanding my potential usefulness. And I say that again with great humility and also understanding that no matter how useful I am, I'm not risking my life. And there are people who are every day, you know, for very little money. Um, so I don't know if that's an adequate answer to your question, but. No, for sure. For sure. Uh, it, it, it is. And, you know, I think you're, 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 you know, we need more people who will take that approach like you do, like, you know, I can do something about it. Therefore, I will do something about it because I can. Um, so that's 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 precious attitude, I'd say. Nathan, tell me, uh, you know, obviously as much as you can and without the details. But you know, uh, one thousand feet view. How how the engagement looks like with with you know once someone reaches out to you or 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 you know the the need is identified, uh, you, you know. How how that usually looks like? Is it are you draw, draw, drawing out a project? Uh, you have sort of a, like a, a template for engagement, or is it like basically you go in and and play by ear, see what's the situation on the ground, and then develop a program based on that? Um, yeah, it, it's a bit of both. I mean, we uh, you know there, I guess there's two kinds of program development. One is we. Um, accomplish some some level of in-state with a program and then the hosts uh or, or the players there say well here's what we need next and you know we can debate or present it internally and and say okay we can continue with our commitment to this group and we want to see um we want to see you know your your next need satisfied um and there are places where we have longer term investments uh, because we can see ourselves continuing to be useful, but we always want to be sure that we evaluate our next steps based on having achieved a specific end state. We're not here to sell a product. We're not here to install ourselves. Um, so we, 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 we look at those metrics carefully. Uh, for new sites and new areas, I mean, uh, the, the relationship, like I said, is generally brokered by um, somebody that we've already worked with or that we have a strong relationship with. And we have a board uh, with, with different levels of expertise. Then we have advisors, um, who are, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, not board of director members, but advisors who provide consultation. So depending on the project, we'll gather as much information as possible myself, uh, and maybe a couple of other of our, um, of our staff who, who engage with the local entities and what we may then invite one of the advisors into the conversation and say, you know, here is the, here's the need, right? Here's the problem set. Uh, what are the building blocks or, or what is a solution towards this problem set? You know, how realistic is it? Um, what's the cost going to be to us? Uh, how long of an investment? And it may require that we say, okay, look, we're, we're interested in helping. We can identify some of the first steps, the very low hanging fruit of how to help you solve this problem. But uh, for us to make a long-term plan, we have to come over there and we'll do a site assessment where we spend time, uh, hopefully offering something in the meantime, but we're better understanding, you know, what a program looks like, whether it's a two-week program or a six-week program where we're going to, to, you know, offer to, to solve that need. In some cases right now, we've identified bottlenecks um, where, for example, their intelligence-based solutions. So we're looking at ways to foster and develop intelligence solutions. And we see the bottlenecks. The bottleneck may be in analytics, for example. Okay, we can gather the intelligence, but the analytics is a problem. So how do we, that that requires a long-term solution, not something we can simply train on because they may be limited in staff. So do we sponsor a staff? Do we, um, how can we alleviate the bottleneck? Because our goal is not to just show up and do what they asked. Our goal is to find that solution. And that solution may involve specific long-term investments. And as a model, we're very cautious to engage in anything that's a long-term commitment to a place because 
we want to be sure that we always have efficiency, uh, that we're always measuring the success and the metrics. So we might carefully look at that program and say, okay, this is a special case in which we are going to make this longer five-year commitment uh, rather than, you know, because uh, our goal always is to enable the people we train to do the job themselves, right? This is, we want to enable them to be at capacity and fully capable. Um, we are not looking to install ourselves. We're not looking for a job, right? And we don't want anybody to be completely reliant on us. We want to be a partner that helps elevate um, capability. So anything that takes us outside of that model is something we have to discuss internally very cautiously, just to say, okay, our model is not to, you know, put a staff member in this place for multiple years, you know, but there's nothing we won't consider because our goal is always, you know, for example, to save the rhino. Our goal is not to be a training company that deploys two-week programs. Our goal is to save the rhino. So we, uh, we're we consultancy. We evolve constantly with every with everything that, that we are presented with. And we may say, okay, we need, uh, for this program, we're going to need rifle <clears throat> lights and handheld lights. So in that case, for example, we went uh, developed a relationship with Cloud Defensive, an awesome um, light company, and said, "Well, look, if we're going to do a little, we have to do a lot. Like here is the here is the breadth of this problem. Um, <clears throat> will you be a partner for us in this?" And actually, in that case, we asked for something very small, and they came through very big. And they said, "We're not just going to solve this part of it. We're going to invest with you long term." And Cloud Defensive then became one of our biggest supporters. Just as an example, Vortex Optics is another one that stepped up to the table and said, "We're going to support you all the way through the long term end state here." Well, that's huge to us because it it's essentially matches every dollar in the budget, which makes it easier for us to make that long term commitment ourselves. So, um, you know, we we as a small surgical consultancy, our ability to engage. Um, more holistically at, at times, what well, always depends on money. You know, everything is about the sponsorship, which is difficult for us in as much as we have to incline private donors to have close relationships with us. So that for, especially for programs in which we purely are restricted from advertising the program or its success. Right. Um, so we, we have to have several small intimate uh, I mean, substantial, but I mean, a small number of donors to come into the door and work with us on that program. Uh, but everything for us is about a unique partnership, building that internal community to support the uh, community we're building um, that 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 is uh, in, engaged in combating the crisis. Yeah. And what's a, for for the companies like Vortex or, or the, the producer of a, of a flash license, what is the incentive for them to get involved? Because they can, like I said, they cannot... Uh, advertise and say like, oh, look, we're doing this great thing because it's kind of like, you know, under the radar. So is it like uh, they, they just want to make a difference as well? They're just good people or, you know, what are the incentives? Well, I can't speak for everybody all the time. Uh, and, and we do put together some um, PR assets for these companies to advertise some level of support. We just have to avoid whatever specifics in that program would, for example, disclose the capability and where it is, because now people know um, if that if that is a concern, as it very often is. Uh, I can tell you in both the cases of uh, our partnerships with Vortex and Cloud Defensive um, <clears throat> and mentioning others like uh, uh, mentioning others like Cry Precision and Multicam and um, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because once I start naming some partners, you know, you have to name them all. You're going to, you're uh, going to miss, you're going to miss one. Yeah. And it's going to be, <laughs> so, and all uh, the rest <laughs> and all the rest, uh, uh, and it, and it, it's program to program, right? Um, we have, uh, uh anyway, my point is in those, it, it, in every situation that comes to mind of a company with whom we have, um, we have a, a, a supporter partnership. I can tell you it's because they're good people. Right. They're 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 not profiting more off of this. It's not that suddenly their customer base says, you know, wow, you support this. I'm going to go buy three more. Right. The value to them, obviously, there's a tax benefit, but the value to them uh, is hopefully what we see and share in our hearts, which is the long term survival of the species that both of us you know, have a vested interest in supporting veterans. Uh, we, we only deploy and send U.S. special operations veterans. Um, but, yeah, I can tell you in those cases, like. You don't always get to pick who you're in the trenches with. This is a long, lonely, difficult uh, proposition, this mission that we're in, and it's very far away, right? Like it's it's around the world. So to, to convince somebody to care, 
you know, you're, you're in it. We look for relationships that we're going to be in for five, 10 years. So I can say with a great deal of gratitude um, that both Cloud Defensive Vortex uh, and any other supporter that I'm able to call to mind um, is, or, or, or with whom we are engaged in a partnership, uh, is they're good people. And we're really grateful to spend time with them. So every one of them we've invited over. So yes, they're good people. Good, good, to, good to hear that. And for how long you're, you're already uh, doing what you're doing? Uh, six years. Six years. Six years. Wow. Six years. Listen, is there a situation, you know, I I don't know how to frame the question, like either was there a situation that you may not want to talk about, was there a situation, but is is it on the cards uh, that you're going in uh, to the place, you're, you know, trying to identify a solution and you see something going on and you go like, nope, we walk because, you know, you just don't like something. Is that is that always on the card? And you know, you you, you may tell whether it, it that that happened, or you may not want to tell that. But I'm just curious because it you know, surely there is a level of surprise once you're in. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, there's two ways in which that can you know, we always look through our our contractors. The people on the ground should always give feedback, right? Hey, it turned out that uh, <clears throat> driving this road is very dangerous. Do not do that again. You know, highly recommend that we avoid using this route. You know, there's things you learn in the process that may not say we go away, but we say because the, the the safety of our contractors and our team is paramount. And some places are safer than others. We have hosts who do a lot to ensure we are in a a, a uh, compartmentalized, if you will, space that, that ensures, um, our safety. Um, there is a situation right now where we were asked to be in a place training and there was a violent terror attack on some of the Rangers there. And that creates a frustration for us because on the one hand, we want to help, you know, the problem's worse than ever. On the other hand, uh, you know, we are a nonprofit, we're a charity, and there's places that we can't necessarily deploy our teams uh, just because the environment is too volatile. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, can we bring some entities from that place to come and train with us somewhere else? You know, is that in line with the, the potential solution? Yeah, it, it, it depends. So absolutely, we have to evaluate, look at that. We look at, you know, State Department um, you know, we'll put out guides. Uh, we had a program in a country where due to an election cycle, there turned out to be a whole lot of, um, violent activity and it just wasn't safe for our team to go through, to go through there. So that was a situation where, you know, we have put a pause on that program. Um, and I hope that things stabilize to the point where we feel secure. And so we have good, strong, stable relationships with, um, official entities in, in these countries and official U.S. entities uh, that host us. And so we look to them for a lot of communication and guidance on um, whether or not we can, uh, whether or not we, we, we are, yeah, whether or not we should reconsider a, a program, for example. Yeah, yeah. And how often, because I presume that, that that also happens, how, how often it happens, Um I don't even know if I'm formulating a question well, but uh, f- for sure you're finding yourself in a situation where uh, protecting of wildlife and wildlife conservation is intertwined uh, or there's an overlap with a political situation. And I presume that you're you, you're trying to stay away from the politics as much as possible because you're there for for uh, for an a- for animals. Is is that a issue for for you and that that you're facing? It can be, certainly. Um, there's areas where engaging in any kind of, like, we are not a group that seeks to militarize, um, but the perception of that um, can be something that is very sticky. Uh, so we have to go through with the national level or our park host to really truly ensure that any of our program activity is cleared and is understood and is, you know, on, a, 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 in a, in a very comfortable and legal zone. Um, obviously too, you face potentially issues of corruption. There's people who profit off of the problem we seek to solve. I don't think that's something we obviously run into very often. It's more likely that we're going to face, uh, bureaucratic complications that just slow down the process but yeah it's possible when you talk about poaching right we know that there is poaching and there's poaching there's a poaching which is you know highly organized um crime organized crime gangs often uh 
sponsored by foreign governments or just foreign countries. And then there is a poaching, bushmeat, um, you know, just poor people trying to put the meat on the table and support their families. Both of them can be equally devastated, devastating for for wildlife. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Because I, I presume the the approach is is quite different in 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 either case, and and this is something that often uh, groups like like yours uh, face criticism, like oh you know you you you, you and all you're doing is contributing to you know uh, further pressurizing those poor uneducated people. Um, so how how you guys deal with with this uh, you, you know situation that you know it might be just just people who try to better their lives that that are on the other end. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> on the one hand, we always have to be very aware of the role that we play, right? And and where the parameters of comfort and and feasibility, I guess, for for um, you know, for the application of our resources and expertise, we do everywhere we go. Um, work alongside a group called the By Grace Foundation, whom we've invited to collaborate with us to do community benefiting programs um, in our areas of operation where applicable and where, um, you know, where feasible as well. Um, most of the parks have, where we work have some kind of positive community engagement <clears throat> program. Uh, and, you know, it's not our place to dictate to them and it's not our role and not, not our expertise to build community engagement programs um, or to to consult on that. Uh, but we do recognize their importance for sure. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot of people who reach out to us very often on Instagram or other places, you know, go poach the poachers, kill the poachers. Look, to us, life is life. And even those engaged in the more militarized poaching, it's dangerous work for them. Uh, it, it, very few would choose it, uh, except out of desperation without the pressure of, you know, this local organized criminal, um, groups. So one way or another, if, if it's wildlife, that's going to be trafficked versus subsistence poaching, there is a greater villain, if you will, or a more nefarious actor than the poachers whom the rangers are interacting with on the ground. And that's something we have to continue to recognize. Um, and that's why you want to get a point of not combat, but deterrence. <clears throat> you want to deter the violent actors from ever engage, potentially violent actors from ever engaging in violence. You want to deter syndicates from, <clears throat> you want to deter the, the or, or reduce the likelihood of recruitment um, for locals by syndicates, uh, which is hard because at the end of the day, it's very economic for subsist subsistence poaching, um, where, like you said, uh, you know, could be people have been displaced by the development of a park and they no longer have access to um, fish or meat like they had before, you know, and, and they rely on it. Or it's just an opportunity to sell meat in a market and it's just over the fence. So let's go take this place that's breeding the wildlife. Um, yeah, it's uh, and that that's an illegal trade, for example, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not the same kind of mechanism that you see. And then you have, for example, the harvesting of wildlife parts to directly fund terror, like you had with Coney. <clears throat> and you have, you know, there's there's um, evidence of that happening in other places. So understanding the motives is always important. Uh, at the end of the day, to us, it doesn't make a difference in terms of we're never training anybody to go, you know, violently stop anyone else. You know, we would like that arrest to happen safely, securely, and with dominance. Um, so you have a contact that leads to an arrest. That arrest is successfully prosecuted <clears throat> because they were able to monitor, gather evidence, you know, a mechanism like that. We don't want a gunfight. Uh, we don't want um, we don't want these guys to have calls at all. You know, we want to get to a point where, you know, a syndicate and, you know, it's a bit of a fantastic idea, but a syndicate goes to recruit somebody and say, no, because everybody I know who goes in there gets stopped and arrested. So I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to engage in that criminal activity. Uh, again, it's it's a fantasy economics drives everything at the end of the day or, or is a primary determinant. But, um, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, <clears throat> it matters a great deal in the community relations. I guess that's the simple way to put it. it matters a great deal in the bridges you can build with the communities. It matters a great deal to understand what is this criminal element willing to do uh, when confronted or when engaged are they likely to cause harm? Are they likely to hurt you? Are they likely to kill you? Uh, if they identify you, are they likely to go to your community, uh, find your family and threaten them? You know, are, are these things part of the recipe or is it just, just a matter of, 
you know, people are coming over for that subsistence poaching or, or just to get meat to trade because there are very few opportunities and there's no syndicate pressure behind them. I mean, those cases, uh, community programs can have a huge effect. Um, and I know of some great uh, examples, but it, it takes a lot of effort and investment. So, yeah, identifying where our role is, we want to, again, do consultation, understand, like, what do we focus on here and what is our end state? And our end state is never violence. We, we always want to get, uh, we say, left of bang. We always want to get left of bang. Like, like they say, the, 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 the biggest, the biggest uh, win is when your enemy didn't even know that there was a fight. No, no that, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and it's whack-a-mole to a degree, you know, this problem. Well, you know, this species may be safe today and it's another species, but, you know, that's that's a global that's a global dynamic. So you just look to be asymmetric. Listen, uh, finally, the, the question that is, uh, I think many people already know the answer, but I would like to kind of hear it straight from you. Um, what is the uh, what is the role or impact of, um, you know, tourism and especially, you know, hunting concessions and hunting? And versus, you know, non non extractive tourism on on poaching or potential prevention of poaching. How how does that look for you, and how big uh, those two factors are in in terms of, you know, uh, how the situation unfolds on the ground? Yeah. Um, well, look. I mean, as I said, the loss of tourism led to a in some places ninety percent budget cut. You know, so that that's detrimental to all conservation, not just counter poaching, not just law enforcement, but all the wildlife conservation and management in that area is going to be dramatically affected. Veterinary care, <clears throat> um, you know, movement of animals, uh, you know, all, all of this stuff. It, hunting, you know, it's, it's a long conversation, but hunting is a part of that tourism block uh, in, a, in a different way. Um, it also protects private <clears throat> reserves, hunting areas, uh, areas, adjacent to um uh areas adjacent to the the places we're more likely to work for example because they're kind of ten tend to surround like national parks with hunting concessions and then they create like a buffer zone is that the is that the that's one yeah that's certainly one way um you know and and also like the the hunting reserves often um benefit from you know the the biodiversity like they, there's a symbiotic relationship um i think for us we we've worked because we've received grants from sci sci west texas dscf and we always look for opportunities to bridge the gap between the protection of hunting areas and the, and the national parks where we more likely work um and to incline those those people who do benefit the local economy care about wildlife and come spend time in the area to say hey come on this side of the fence and you know let let's discuss ways to to you know protect holistically uh, so that's an opportunity we always look for um obviously because these entities have given us grants you know they are directly involved in our our work and our efforts so that is an impact that maybe they didn't have last year they have this year uh, because we are willing to work diligently with the money they give us to to have that impact um but any of the hunting reserves any of the concessions that have hunting as part of their um as part of their wildlife management program uh you know if that stops if the trophy movement stops then that that is a a brick in the wall that's being removed you know, and, or, or a stone in the dam that's being pulled out. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, without going too far, um, you know, this is a long discussion and there's a lot of nuance to it and a lot of specifics and specific victories to look at and difficulties that are, that are facing. But, um, I would simply say that in both hunting, uh, communities and the, the safari tourism, that all should be inclined to take a greater interest, uh, uh, education and, and participate in more advocacy for <clears throat> all national parks in Africa and all wildlife. Um, we can't sort of identify one demographic uh, uh, from another. It's it is a, a it is a dam, you know, made of stones or of bricks or however you want to describe it. Uh, and if you start removing those or isolating those, then then the water starts to starts to flow and things get really really dire. So we appreciate really appreciate the support of, of uh, every community that supports us, certainly the hunting communities who've invited us to present at, at different shows and develop some of our best relationships have developed in those communities. And we are mutually educated. Um, 
you know, educated in, in those relationships. It's, it seems, it seems to me like, you know, you know like, I don't, I don't know whether, whether it's true or not, but it seems to me maybe because I'm coming like, you know, more, more in tune, let's say with the hunting community, but it, it seems to me like, uh, the potential of making impact is, is far greater, uh, versus, versus, uh, you know, like a photo tourism or whatever, where, where, you know, photo tourism is more focused on, you know, sort of like a, you have a hotel and people looking for luxury and the cool photos for Instagram while, while Hunter seems to be like less people, uh, like, like, like more land protected for less people because they're more tend to go into the, you know, live in a tent or in a, or in a, um, encampment in a deep in a bush. Um, would that, would that, would that be, uh, you know, correct? So I, I don't know. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to say like, like one is more important than the other. I, I, I get that message, but I'm just curious, you know, uh, of your, of your assessment of my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm, <clears throat> you'd have to really become statistical to, to accurately, you know, weigh and balance. I, I would say, you know, it's not a competition. Again, they're, they're both bricks in the wall. Uh, I think that there's a limitation to both, uh, in, in terms of like the direct revenue support, um, <clears throat> and both environments that they're likely to protect are, are distinct, um, and both need each other. Um, you know, there's other questions of like um, predation, you know, should hunting be, um, should hunting be allowed in, in, as it traditionally was, historically was in the national park systems. And, you know, there, there's a lot of healthy debate. Uh, I, I think it's very rare that there's a very obvious black and white answer because, you know, we're trying to coexist with species um, whom we've advanced technologically so far beyond that our natural relationship is <clears throat> is completely distorted. Um, there's areas where elephants, for example, are hugely destructive to river adjacent um, forests uh, and ecosystems in ways that historically they won't because weren't because historically um, there were villages set alongside these rivers who, you know, made pitfall traps or hunted the elephants to stop the destruction of, you know, their farmlands or their communities or their houses or fishing um, apparatuses. Um, and that relationship is gone. So the elephants now have no restriction because they have, at one point, human beings were the predator, right? There was predation on elephants. There was a, a, an antagonistic relationship, which is now gone. So the elephants, uh, 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 are hyper-focused on an area with certain resources and they're destructive to it. And, it. and in that case, it's not necessarily about the elephant population, but you've removed a factor that helped manage the environment. Um, the biggest factor in those cases is just the restriction of land for wild use. You know, the number of people on the planet, <clears throat> and I'm not advocating population control or anything like that, but the number of people and the amount of land allocated to wildlife, that's the biggest problem that we face. Elephants used to cross continents, you know, now they're lucky to cross, you know, a, a national park. Um, so it, just using those as examples in which there are other directions of conversation about the, the, you know, could, for example, in that case, is there a, a way in which hunting could play a, a, a different part in that national park and remove from it all the public relations um, complications and pressures that, that, that are um, imposed upon that park, for example. Um, and then you have other problems. Well, a gun uh, and the appearance of a person with a gun and now the vehicle they drove to show up with the gun, all of these are become, you know, part of elephant memory and behavior. Uh, and so now they're more hostile towards people and it's harder for tourists to coexist. And, you know, now if you need to do a dart or some kind of veterinary care for an, an elephant, you've created complications in those relationships. Um, it's, that's why I say people who, when I hear presentations of how black and white it may be, you know, you do this and the result is this. Um, it's far more nuanced, complicated than that. And again, our, my role, I'm not an expert in any of the things I just described. These are just um, conversations I'm presented with. And the more time you spend around the fire, the more you understand that any solution you want to present must be, um, you know, carefully, uh, you, you must play devil's advocate with it. 
absolutely, like any Intel analysis, uh, you must play, um, you must always look at alternative methods and, and measure efficacy and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, but, but again, our role is not to play, is not to be a, a, a lobbying group for any of those um, solutions, purposes, or, or uh, communities. It's to play our role. But um, we invite anybody to spend time around the fire with us to you know, hear what we hear. Yeah, that's uh no you're you're you you guys are doing a fantastic job and you know there's more more people like you needed badly. Um listen Nathan tell us uh, you know how how people can support uh eco defense group how you know is there is there a way to engage is there a way to donate is there you know are you running any any campaigns any programs that people can you know engage in if yes in what way certainly we we right now have a raise we're looking to purchase some vehicles for some parks that's a very direct and tangible need which will continue so we have a campaign on our instagram right now to support that what's your instagram uh eco defense group uh, eco defense group our website ecodefensegroup.org uh you can go there and donate directly you can purchase a shirt or something um like i said we're a relatively clandestine organization and we do look for the right donors to come in the door to build relationships with uh but anybody can support and see you know the the results and we are a small enough group that there's always going to be a very tangible and direct relationship between your dollar and you know where it goes so on all channels we're at eco defense group um or eco defense group.org and um we certainly invite anybody and any of your listeners and i know you have a great many intuitive intelligent listeners who you know want <clears throat> long-form discussion on you know on um different conservation issues to to come and participate with us uh, we we we're grateful for everyone and we're certainly in an ongoing need for sure for sure and and i'm going to put uh, all the links in the description of this show so people who are who you know you don't have to rewind this and 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 kind of uh, go back and listen to that but the, all the links in the description of the show um nathan thank you thanks so much for your time thanks so much for what you're doing um it's a it's a it's a great initiative great job and uh, i wish you all the best for the future Thanks, Tommy. I appreciate you greatly, and thanks for having me on. 